Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For decades, the Saffir-Simpson scale has been the scale used to warn people about the destructive power of an approaching hurricane. But recently, it has come under fire because it is based solely on wind and doesn't speak to the hazards associated with a hurricane such as rainfall. So a group of civil engineers has developed a model in which they say can truly forecast the power of a hurricane. Today, we talked to a member of that group, Stephanie Pilkington, to discuss the inner workings of that model. We'll dive into a discussion on how one day we can use such models to protect life and property and explore the true measure of a hurricane. Stephanie, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, Stephanie is a Ph.D. candidate and a researcher at the NIST Center for Risk-Based Community Resilience Planning. And I don't know if you're based in Maryland. I, I used to live in Germantown, so I used to drive by a, a very large NIST center uh, on, on my way to work every day. I also know there's a big presence in Boulder, Colorado. Where are you based? I'm based at Colorado State University, which is in Fort Collins. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so you are a part of a, a larger sort of a, a network of, of NIST researchers. So we're really happy to have you here. One one of the things that really came up and I, this discussion really uh, got uh, going after Hurricane Florence in 2018, this notion that the Saffir-Simpson scale just may be inadequate to capture the, the the true danger or risk associated with a hurricane. Uh, before we get into that, and we're going to dive quite a bit into it, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at NIST. Okay. My name is Stephanie Pilkington. I'm currently a PhD candidate at Colorado State University. A lot of the work I focus on is modeling community resilience from multi-hazard events or natural hazard events. And we look at both the impact and recovery over time following such events. Now, are you, is your background prior to your PhD work, are you a meteorologist or are you a civil engineer or are you a little bit of both? I'd say a little bit of both, but my degrees are all in civil engineering with a focus I kind of built in that's related to meteorology. For example, I also storm chase. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when's the last time you've been out there chasing? Oof, I could not get out this past spring, but uh, spring previous being in Colorado is actually kind of beneficial for that. Yeah. And do you interact at all with any of the folks? Uh, Colorado State University, for, for those listening to the Weather Geeks podcast, has one of the the, the better uh, graduate programs in atmospheric sciences in the, in the nation. So do you interact at all with any of the folks over there? I, I know several colleagues there in that department. Yes, actually. And a lot of my friends are in that department. Um but I have taken classes over with that group, too. Yeah, so you certainly definitely are sort of sharing both sides of the, the fence here. My, my, a good colleague of mine, I don't know if you happen to know him, uh, Dr. Brian Bledsoe was there at civil, I think he was in civil engineering there at CSU, but he's now here at the University of Georgia with me. Do you happen to know him? Uh, I know the name, but I don't haven't met him. Okay, no. well, we'll move on. I just wanted to give him a little shout out. Let's talk about why wind is not necessarily the best measure of the impact of the power of a hurricane. So wind is just one of many variables occurring when a hurricane makes landfall. 
you know, we obviously know that hurricanes bring with it storm surge, intense rainfall. But there's also this idea that certain locations have different infrastructure qualities. Certain locations have higher population densities. These all play a role in the overall impact of that hurricane. Right. And I think we've seen that with recent storms, perhaps like Hurricane Florence or Hurricane Harvey. I, I want to kind of talk about Hurricane Florence for because that's really where this discussion uh, gained traction in the broader media, although I suspect you've been working on this problem for quite some time. Uh, It was interesting because when we saw Hurricane Florence approaching the Carolina coastline, we had this sense that it was going to be a fairly significant storm. Actually, it, it, it lowered its intensity some as it got closer to landfall, but we as meteorologists always knew that it was going to stall out. The models were pretty bullish on that happening. It was going to Mm -hmm. stall and kind of sit there and dump quite a bit of rainfall. Unfortunately, some people, once they heard the the intensity of the Saffir-Simpson scale was lower than expected, some people kind of let their guard down, went back into their homes. But these were some of the same places that were always going to get the flooding associated with this rainfall. So that's a big challenge. That's a that's a big challenge when you're trying to save lives and property. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what you saw and what, what you were thinking as you saw Hurricane Florence play out. Yeah, I had the same thought when uh, we were looking at the fact that it was going to intensity wise, you know, slow down, for lack of a better term. That doesn't necessarily mean the impact lessened. Uh, a lot of the times when we're looking at impact, flooding is a major contributor to that. And if the precipitation didn't decrease, the forecast in precipitation, that doesn't necessarily mean your impact decreased. Now, a couple of the areas that felt a brunt of the impact from Florence did so because of heavy flooding. So what ended up happening is when we communicate using the Saffir Simpson scale, people think that or seem to interpret it as that's the bottom line risk they're looking at. When in fact, there's multiple variables at play here. Just because it went down in wind speed does not mean that the rainfall forecast necessarily changed. Same thing for Harvey. Harvey did downgrade once it made landfall, but it sat there and continued to dump rain. And in that case, rain was the big flood producer and the big damage producer. Yeah, it, with Harvey, I I, I, you know, I wrote an article in Forbes a week before landfall saying it's going to dump 30 to 40 inches of rainfall uh, yep. and, and even more. But yet I, I heard people afterwards saying, wow, we didn't think it was going to be that bad. We really didn't. And, and yet all the data was suggesting it was going to be that bad from a rainfall perspective. But I think one of the things that you're alluding to is people with hurricanes are so attuned to the wind damage or the wind profile of the storm that they underestimate what a, what a storm that may not even have a name anymore can do when it sits there and dumps rainfall for days. Oh, Definitely. And I think that was actually the motivation behind starting doing this work because I was in New England for Hurricane Sandy. And, you know, we had, I kept hearing people say, oh, it's just a category one. Yes. Barely by the time I made landfall. And yeah, I, I hate say. the just there. That drives me yeah. mad. <laughs> keep, keep going, but I just had to get that in. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It drove me nuts hearing, oh, it's just a category one. And... You know, I almost got a sore throat from all the times I kept saying, "Okay, well, it may just be a category one, but it's New York. There are other hazards. You know, New York has built out from the shoreline. You start bringing surge into that factor. If you go above the walls of where they built out, okay, now you're going to flood seawater into Manhattan. 
you know, it doesn't really matter what the wind is at that point if you're still going to bring the sea level rise up. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. And so this notion, and I think the National Weather Service has really kind of tried to shift the narrative some by moving to what's called impact-based forecasting. But Mm -hmm. I do think the sort of hurricane scale, the Saffir-Simpson scale is so ingrained in the culture of society right now that people hear Cat 3, Cat 4, Cat 5, and they make different decisions based on the category of the storm. We saw this with Hurricane Michael in Florida last year. Uh, I thought by Monday, two days before it actually made landfall, that it was probably going to be at least a Category 3 storm. And I wrote to that effect in Forbes. Ended up being even stronger than that. But I guess my question was, at what point is a Cat 3 and a Cat 4 really different in terms of how you make decisions? But when I talk to people there in Florida and other places, and I talk to some social science colleagues, they say, yeah, people have these different sort of decision trees in their mind, depending on whether they think it's a Cat 4, Cat 3, or even a tropical storm. Is that your experience? Oh, definitely. And the other thing that's interesting is that their neighbors will influence their decision as well. If, say, they have one neighbor that decides, they saw this with um, Hurricane Ike, one neighbor decides to evacuate, then others will decide to evacuate and it'll kind of snowball an effect. So it definitely, there's different ways they interpret it. And I think the goal when we were looking at communicating impact was ultimately to kind of mirror that almost dependence we have on the Sapphire Simpson scale and the way it's done by creating a similar kind of quote unquote ranking system. But it would be coupled with that Sapphire Simpson scale. In other words, if you looked at, say, um, Hurricane Sandy, you'd say, okay, that's a category one impact level five event. So we're still within a kind of scheme that the public is used to because we've become so dependent on the Sapphire Simpson scale. But now we're trying to bring in all these other factors as well. You know, it's interesting. You know, the the question that I, I was going to ask you next, and you you sort of gave me a nice lead in, is <laughs> do you think the criticism of the Sapphire Simpson scale is warranted? Now, one of the things that I don't think is often communicated when we're warning about hurricanes in the public is that it is a wind scale. It's actually the Sapphire Simpson wind scale, and so it does what it was designed to do quite well, actually. Uh, But it's just evolved into sort of the end-all, be-all scale that people use for hurricane threats. And I think that's where your research is sort of trying to change the game a little bit. So do you think it's the criticism of it's fair or just just a bit sort of overblown? A little bit of both. It depends on the context. Um, I think when we start looking at the dependence on it, As a society, when we look at relating risk of an event, that I think it's justified. I mean, you're right. It does do what it's designed to do. It ranks it by the wind speed. And I've even had publications where I've gotten comments back to say to change it to say the Sapphire Simpson wind scale, (laughs) specifically pointing that out. So more so in the communication side, I think it's warranted. It's not wrong in what it does. But we just become dependent on it on how it's moved forward in communicating risk. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. Now, you kind of gave us a hint or a clue about your model or your approach here when you uh, were answering the question previously. Uh, tell us a little bit about your model. What what are the parameters or factors that go into the model? Oh, yeah, sure. So the hurricane impact level model is essentially uses artificial neural networks 
which is a form of AI, to communicate multiple input parameters to an overall impact level, which is in terms of economic damage. Now, economic damage we chose because that's one of the ways we rank hurricanes after the fact. You know, this is the costliest hurricane in history, so on and so forth. The input parameters we chose are your hazards, of course, so your wind speed, your maximum accumulated precipitation, your maximum storm surge, and then, of course, the population affected, so the amount of people that reside within the area of tropical storm force winds as it's making landfall. And then from there, we also have the option for up to four possible landfall locations. So, for example, Hurricane Katrina actually made landfall in Florida before it went to the New Orleans area. So that actually has two landfalls. Similarly, with Hurricane Irene, it tracked up the East Coast. So it has multiple landfalls as well. And we wanted to be able to communicate that, you know, this might not be hitting just one location to hit this entire population density. Right. So this is clearly a multi-parameter, multi-factor scale that is all encompassing and trying to capture the full suite of impacts associated with a hurricane. Now, interestingly, I mean, there are some, and we've talked about this on on, on the Weather Geeks podcast in the past, there are some that argue that these multi-scale sort of multi-numeric approaches will confuse the public even more. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, That's one of the reasons we tried to make it the outcomes of it, the impact level, try to mirror how the Saffir-Simpson scale is done. So by not adding in, let's say, a 10 rank, 10 level system. So if we went to something that had impact levels zero through 10 type of idea or a different type of ranking, we tried to mirror it so that it would be something that people are more used to. Right. Because you can, you can definitely start to introduce this level of confusion. And we, you know, I'm guilty of this as well, but we do do this in the scientific community where, you know, we try to communicate technical content, concepts that we kind of fail at communicating them accurately. And it just adds confusion to the situation. So we really tried to keep all the technical stuff more so on our end and kind of bottom line it in a way we thought people would be familiar with. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Ph.D. candidate and NIST researcher Stephanie Pilkington. And we're talking about the Saffir-Simpson scale. What are the true measures of a hurricane? And uh, I think this this is a very important topic and came more into light in 2018 after Hurricane Florence. Now, this is Weather Geek, so we can get a little bit geeky. Your your last uh, discussion was talking about the need to be very clear and accessible for the public. But I want to dive a little bit deeper into what neural networks and machine learning are, because you mentioned that that is a part of your model. What are neural networks and machine learning and why are you using them? Okay, so, yeah, neural networks, 
Yeah, because now I'm going to geek out a little bit. Yeah, let's you. geek out. We love to geek out. That's what we do. <laughs> so neural networks are essentially a form of artificial intelligence. Uh, neural networks are, are very much designed to perform one specific goal. So in this case, we designed it with the specific goal in mind of predicting impact from a hurricane in terms of economic damage. But what they're essentially modeled after is how the human brain learns. So within our brain, we have neurons and synapses that fire between them that are transferring data, essentially. You know, if you're, and I always use this example because I don't know why it just pops out in my mind, but I had to test the idea that metal conducts heat when I was like five years old. <laughs> you know, you, you touch hot metal and it burns and you automatically create these pathways in your brain that says, do not do that. Like, it basically tells you what the outcome will be so that you know moving forward. Right. Same kind of idea, just on a different level. So in an artificial neural network, you have neurons in an input layer, which would be all the inputs from the hurricane. Then you have hidden layers, which are hidden neurons. And then you have an output layer with output neurons, which would be each of the impact levels. Now, between these layers, you have multi-connections, which you could think of as the synapses in a brain. And these connections are how the data relates to each other. Uh, it's a very non-linear approach. It allows us to almost have them intertwine and interconnect to reach an overall predictive outcome. So this is really uh, sort of the sort of building on what we're seeing now in society where we're seeing more artificial intelligence, uh, uh, machine learning, neural network uh, activities being applied to many aspects of society. You decided to apply it to sort of hurricane risk and assessment. Yes, exactly. Yeah, not- it was actually kind of a funny story. The idea to use neural networks was my advisor's idea, uh, Dr. Mahmood. Because I told him I wanted to do this thing with communication and hazards. And he's like, oh, what about neural networks? And we kind of ran with it because it has it's such a ap- applicability in this area because of its nonlinear nature. Now, who, who is your advisor again? Dr. Hussam Mahmoud. Okay, yeah, no, I, I know a Rizal Mahmoud as well, so I wanted to make sure it wasn't the same colleague. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I want to kind of talk about the model a bit more. Have you actually tested the model? And if so, how, how has it done so far? Yep, we have tested it. We have been using it real time for the past three hurricane seasons. Ironically, I was a little frustrated the first two because nothing was happening. (laughs) So this is kind of the dilemma we have as scientists because we know these are dangerous storms and we don't want any harm to the public. But yet, from a scientific standpoint, we need some test cases. Exactly. I'm sitting there. I'm like, you know, I should be happy that there's no destruction. And at the same point, I'm kind of wishing for it, but I shouldn't wish for it. Yeah, the first two years we had a couple of weak storms that made landfall. And then all of a sudden 2016 came with Matthew and then 2017 came. So it really picked up from there and we have been tracking it real time and it has proved fairly well. What we did find in one of our publications coming out soon, we'll highlight this, is that it's most accurate 30 hours out from landfall. Um, And it's more... For hurricane events like Harvey that decided to rapidly intensify, it's that 30-hour mark becomes more critical. However, hurricanes like Hurricane Irma stayed pretty consistent in their forecast. And the forecasting impact level was an impact level four, and it held at that for the entire forecast period. And that's what it ended up being once we got the final tabulated results from Irma. 
So this is really interesting. And I, I hear what you're saying, because one of the things that I've noticed in recent years, and I think the literature perhaps supports that, is we're seeing uh, active, what we call rapid intensification or RI events. For, uh, for those listening, rapid intensification, uh, we look at storms that drop a certain amount of pressure over a given amount of time. We saw it, for example, with Hurricane Michael. Uh, you mentioned it with Hurricane Harvey as well. And so that 30-hour window or that 30-hour threshold that you talked about uh, is a challenge because you might have a storm that is within that 30-hour boundary and rapidly intensifies. So uh, how are you trying to deal with that or are you going to adjust the model or is it just something that's going to be a deficiency of the model going forward for now at least? For now, it's probably considered a deficiency of the model. Uh, One of the things is that the model is heavily reliant on you know, the forecast coming out of the National Hurricane Center. So if that rapid intensification isn't seen prior or didn't doesn't come out in the advisories, I should say, doesn't come out in the advisories until 20 hours out, let's say, then it won't be in the model until that point either. And this is solely because I am not, I don't have a degree in meteorology. I'm not a forecaster. I'm an engineer. So I'm trying to kind of, leave that part to the meteorologists because they know better than I do and then bring it into the impact side, which is where the engineering part comes in. Well, you do know, though, (laughs) one of the big challenges with with hurricane forecasting, unfortunately, is the intensity forecast. You know, the track forecasts have gotten somewhat good over the last several decades. There's been market improvement. The challenge is still that darn intensity forecast, though. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like your 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 model really hangs on that to some degree. It does. And this other, the same publication, we found that it's sensitivity at this 30 hour mark. If we also look at uh, data trends for the past five years on intensity and track forecast, what we found, I believe it was around an 80 knot difference in wind speed. So intensity is equivalent to around the 30 hour threshold. Which to me tells me that, okay, we're still in the same category. If you do a rapid intensification where you jump a category, now we've got a problem. Right. And that creates problems uh, across the board in general, just from an emergency uh, preparedness standpoint, a meteorological standpoint, et cetera. Uh, I yep. want to I, I kind of circle around to the sort of so what factor here, because that's for me in my own research and my own weather communication, that's always a bottom line for me. Uh, what is your ultimate goal for your model? The ultimate goal is I would like it to like to see it in use eventually. Uh, in use specifically with the Saffir-Simpson scale in conjunction with weather forecasts. So that maybe it provides a way for us to communicate risk that's succinct and easy to understand for the public. That's the ultimate goal when we set out to create this what, model. What, what, what does that look like? Though? I mean, in terms, let's, let's take a case like a hurricane, oh, Florence or Harvey. Um, what does that look like? Who's issuing is, is your model or your rating system coming from the hurricane center or from local emergency manager? What, what does the scenario ideally look like in your mind? Ideally, uh, a nationwide entity would be preferable. So that would be like the National Hurricane Center, um, something that it's at that point it would be well established. All the kinks are worked out well accepted by the community. Uh, If you can get the national hurricane center behind something like that, then you know, it's pretty much well established as well. 
So I would say more so on the national level like that, that then can communicate down, can be brought down into the local levels as well. Yeah, I talked to uh, Dr. Rick Nab, uh, the former director of the National Hurricane Center, now a senior tropical specialist here at the Weather Channel. And we, we had a little conversation on a previous podcast about this. And, you know, you know I think he, you know, recognized and, and mentioned the sort of challenges that the Sapphire Simpson scale pro, uh, causes. But I, I sensed a little bit of hesitation in terms of sort of, you know, more multivariate or sort of throwing other things into the mix that the forecasters at the Hurricane Center have to deal with. So if that were the case there at the Hurricane Center, could you see a scenario where someone like a FEMA could could be a good home for, for your rating system? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, especially because once you start looking at the emergency management level, you know, that's where a lot of our communication and risk and preparedness and evacuation orders come out of. So that's also definitely another way forward with it. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with PhD candidate and researcher Stephanie Pilkington. Uh, she's uh, working on her PhD at Colorado State University, and she's also a researcher with the National Institute for Standards and Technology Center for Risk-Based Community Resilience Planning. And I want to kind of pivot my discussion there now. What does your model say in general about the current state of resiliency? And before you even answer that question, define for the listeners what at least you understand resiliency to mean because it, it's one of those words that gets thrown around now it's kind of buzzwordy but someone listening to this casually may say what the heck do they mean when they're talking about resiliency yeah resilience we typically look at as the ability of a community or an individual building let's say to absorb and then recover from an extreme stressor so an extreme stressor in this case would be a hurricane so absorb would mean the damage you have from the hazards from a hurricane. So the impact of the hurricane. The recovery portion is, say, how long does it take to get people back in their homes? How long does it take to rebuild those homes? How long until schools are fully populated again? Many, many criteria within that realm of what are we trying to recover back to? And this model is more so focused on the impact side. We're looking at that ability to absorb. It wasn't originally designed with the intent of modeling overall resilience, since it was designed with the intent of communication. But if I had to say it would be focused more so in that initial impact and ability to absorb a hazard. And so what, what then sort of back to my original question now, what, what does it say about from your perspective about the current state of resiliency in some of these vulnerable uh, geographies? Okay. So what, if we look at the impact side, one of the studies we looked at is say, if we move some historical events around along the U S coastline, how does their impact change? One of the things we found is that if we moved a pretty weak, tropical storm up to New York, you're still looking at a significant impact level. So when we're talking resilience, you're looking at a 
sharp drop in that initial impact from an event, how well they're able to absorb an extreme stressor. So they're vulnerable on that end to that extent because they're going to end up with a larger damage state or sorry, a larger impact level than say an area in Florida, it turns out. However, the other concept is that how do we move these things over in time? So if we take some historical hurricanes and run them as if they were to hit today, have all these measures we put in place actually reduced the impact from these events? What we found is that they didn't. Um, So even things like the seawall in Texas, um, you know, our national flood insurance program, that these things haven't done anything to really reduce that sort of initial impact from an event. Right. Have you been in a hurricane yourself or been been down essentially chasing a hurricane? <laughs> so I do storm chase, but more so tornadoes because I can uh, observe them from afar. <laughs> right. Um, hurricane, I've been in Irene. Uh, I was in the Washington, D.C. area when that hit. Yes, Yes, I, I I believe I was actually in, there at the time as well. <laughs> what, what speaking of you know hurricanes, Florida and Texas are two of the more vulnerable parts of the United States to hurricanes. Uh, mm-hmm. Why are they so vulnerable? Well, the funny thing is, is I can't overlook the fact that you know their location plays a strong role in that. Sure, they're they're sort of sticking out in the tropics or near the tropics. <laughs> I mean, you want warm water for hurricanes, and they're pretty much in it. Yes, um, so that definitely plays a role. When you start to look at both these states, one of the other things they both have in common is a strong population increase, um, which actually plays a large role in the overall impact from an event. You know, you increase a population, you increase the infrastructure available to destroy. And a lot of places as infrastructure, as sorry, as population grows, you know, we're still trying to keep up with our infrastructure quality and quantity to meet new demands. So now you add an extreme stressor to that And that makes these areas even more vulnerable because they're just struggling to keep up with base rates as it is. And can I add something to that? I want to get your thoughts on it. You mentioned this increase in population. So you're adding more condos. There's more more stuff in the way of these hurricanes. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the increase in cost in addition to some other things perhaps that we'll talk about in a moment. But what you also add, not only are you adding more people to these vulnerable communities, you're adding more people that perhaps aren't experienced with hurricanes. Talk to us about the impact there. Oh, yes, definitely. I actually was having this conversation with someone recently where I said, you know, I wonder if there's a way we can look at resilience by people's experience with an event. It's really funny when you move to an area that either is, you know, gets a lot of hurricanes or gets a lot of tornadoes. If someone's lived there their whole life, their perspective on it is a lot different than someone that just moved there. And... I almost want to say their their emotional state is more resilient to such events because they're able to observe the situation and, you know, prepare and kind of take it in better. So, yeah, if you have more people moving to these areas that aren't used to it, you almost add to panic that people who are used to it would not have because they've basically, I hate to say it this way, but built up a tolerance almost. 
Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But even that tolerance buildup actually can be dangerous, too, because yes. you hear statements like, oh, I've lived through category three, 10 category threes all my life. I'm not moving. And See, but that, that comes back to the category then. Yeah. And that's why I said that, because people sort of have that sort of anchoring in experience. I saw a little of that with Harvey because people in Houston are they're used to getting floods all of the time. But the oh, yeah. challenge is. People haven't lived through an anomaly event. So their experience with other events, even though they may have lived through certain things, aren't uh, they haven't experienced what we call an anomaly event for a reason, because it's an anomaly. Talk (laughs) about that. Uh, So that's that's also an interesting point. There's this. That would be called like a black swan event. I don't know if you've you've read that book. but I have. Yeah, that's really it's really fascinating. He gives this example of a chicken on a farm or something. You know, every day the farmer feeds the chicken. And so the chicken becomes comfortable and thinks that that's going to happen every day. Right up until the day the farmer decides that it wants chicken for dinner. So, (laughs) you know, there's this idea that these types of events are very hard to predict. And they're really hard for individuals to wrap their mind around. It's just kind of one of the things in how our brain is structured, you know, it's not necessarily true that what has happened in the past will hold true moving forward in the future. Yeah, we, we, we talk about new normals all of the time. And, you know, one of the things that's looming in the discussion uh, is climate change and, you know, you know, I had a reporter actually call me the other day. They wanted to talk to me and they were like, well, climate change has become so political. I was like, no, it has. It's, a, it's, it's been politicized, but the science is what it is. And so the, the peer reviewed literature suggests that um, there's not as much clarity on the frequency of, of hurricanes in a climate change world. But their uh, consensus uh, science that I'm seeing suggests that when they do occur, on average, they, they may be a bit more intense and we may see more rapid intensification as well. So talk to us about one, your thoughts on that, and then two, can your model sort of account for the potential impacts of climate change? So, yeah, that's definitely what I've seen as well is there's consensus on when they do form, they're going to be more intense. Uh, Most of the studies actually do show that you'll see increased wind speeds, increased precipitation, and then, of course, sea level rise just automatically, you could say, increased surge. Because if we're rising the sea level, obviously storm surge is going to rise as well. Yeah, that's. I think that's a case where when people sort of ask the question, well, is climate change impact, uh, impacting this generation right now of hurricanes? I think one of the easiest answers is, is related to sea level because there's more water coming in with the surge because it's a higher level of, of ri- rise. And so there, when you have storm surge, you're dealing perhaps with more water than you would have 100 years ago, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. And that's where you have... You know, the vulnerability of states like Florida, which have low elevations, that's where that really starts to come in. You know, if you have sea level rise, if we just had sea level rise, Florida would still be a very vulnerable area because of that. Right. But yeah, but then you throw in, you know, every now and, and this is a tough discussion to have with people because they want to sort of say, oh, well, you know, that hurricane wasn't that strong. What are you saying that we're going to have more intense hurricanes? It's, it's hard for people to sort of sort of not talk about things in sort of individual or sort of, uh, you know, one off terms. Because, they, that, because we say they're going to be a generation of stronger hurricanes doesn't mean every hurricane is going to be a cat right. five hurricane. I find that to be very challenging when I when I talk to the public, perhaps, particularly those that, you know, maybe don't don't, don't understand the science as we do. Now, do you <laughs> find this? 
Physics is hard. Yeah. So, I mean, but, but can your, can your model incorporate, or are you thinking about such changes going forward or is that something that's to be D to be determined? So we have looked at using it for that purpose. Uh, Specifically, this model was built based on current infrastructure quality. So keeping this in mind, it can change the hazards. So if we know that we're going to see an increase in the average wind speed of however many knots or miles per hour, we can add that hypothetical situation into the model. Same thing with precipitation, same thing with storm surge in terms of sea level rise. The hazards themselves can be added into the model and also population increase and increased storm size because we're looking at the population affected. And we did look at that. So by doing all of those those four things, we can kind of get a baseline of what we would expect to change. You know, what does it take to make the new norm a billion dollar event? Not accounting for inflation and not accounting for changing infrastructure, which would obviously make these numbers worse. But what would it take to make the new norm a billion dollar event? And we have started to look at that primarily. Right. And and I'm glad to hear that because, you know, one of the things I talked to Congressman Bob Inglis, who's a former congressman, and he he talks about, you know, he doesn't understand this sort of skepticism that that you see in some camps concerning climate change. He said, you know, good, good conservative principle. Bob's a very principled conservative. He said good conservative principle is to prepare for all of the risk. So if there's Mm -hmm. a possibility of it happening, you need to have a scenario where you've prepared for it. And so I I, I appreciate him saying that because I think that's something that we all can learn from uh, uh, on these issues. Now, I want in this last few minutes, I want to just get your perspective because you've been doing research on this for a while. You you know, there are a lot of people jumping into this game, so to speak, after Harvey and Florence, but you've been at this for a while. So I really trust your expertise on this. Um, Just based on your experience, um, how how do you see communities best getting prepared for hurricanes, even either now or going forward? What are just some things that you've picked up along the way from your own research or observations that where communities can just do a better job? Oh, that is like, as you're asking that, I'm almost like, Oh dear. (laughs) It's a, it's kind of a complex way to look at it. And I say this because, you know, jokingly civil engineers often say to each other, you know, maybe we should just move new Orleans. Um, we know that's not going to happen. So when we talk about how the communities can better prepare, one of the things I've always, I've kind of, Sorry, how do I put this? I've kind of started to observe observe when we do these studies after events is that a lot of the time when we talk about our preparation, our infrastructure, you know, how we grow a community, a lot of it seems like those are the problems that come in that make it a disaster for a natural hazard. And ultimately, what that says to me is that we're trying to fight Mother Nature. We're, We're essentially putting up barriers and trying to better Mother Nature. We picked a fight with someone we can't win. And instead, what we should be doing is looking at how we adapt, how we absorb those impacts, and how we can readjust after the fact. So in other words, instead of just forcefully trying to tame the Mississippi, maybe there's some way we can go about you know, working within the bounds of the fact that that is a meandering river. Stuff like this, you know, especially when we're building coastal communities and those areas are growing, focusing on the fact that we are not going to best Mother Nature. She's going to win. End of story. We just need to be able to work within those bounds. 
You know, that's a really, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I have little things that I like to use when I'm communicating, but boy, I, I really just learned something from you. That was a really great way of framing this. We're picking a fight with someone we can't win. I think, I think that's an excellent way to put this. I mean, I, I, I remember a comedian, I don't remember who it was, but he was saying that there's not a, a single person that can stop water when it decides it wants to go over and go through some levees. And I think he was referring to the um, Hurricane Katrina. I mean, you know, the force oh, of water. Yeah. Water, That's another water. example I always give is that, you know, we all think water is not that big of a deal. But if you think about it, it's a, a, a cubic foot of water. So a cube that's a foot by a foot by a foot weighs 62 pounds. Absolutely. Yeah. You it's, know, that's the force that's, to be reckoned with. That's smaller than most of my carry ons. Right. And would not pass the weight inspection at the airport. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. No, we, we know that water is always the, the, the deadliest threat in a hurricane, whether it be surge related or the inland freshwater flooding. And so it's ironic that we've been talking about the Saffir Simpson scale, which is a wind scale. And yet the, yep. the most deadly aspect of a storm, it's not the most telegenic aspect often, but it's off, often the deadliest is water. So my last question, or maybe my next to last question, because I have <laughs> one more for you after that. Do we get people to stop using the Saffir Simpson scale or do we get them to understand a, a better way to use it? What, how would you answer that? Um, as far as communicating risk, it's, it's not great for that aspect. Um, but I wouldn't go ahead, go so far as to say, like, let's just this season, we're just going to stop using the Saffir Simpson scale. I don't think that would go over well at all. I think it would throw more confusion into the mix. If we want to eventually get away from the Sapphire Simpson scale, I think the ideal way to do it is start and pair it with some other form of risk communication. And then maybe, you know, start to weed it out. But in no way do I see it as a good idea to just all of a sudden stop using that scale altogether. Yeah, I, I thought you might say that. And I, I, I agree with you, you as well. I really do appreciate the fact that you have been, I mean, because this has been something that people are sort of jumping on uh, in recent uh, months after the 2018, 2017 season. But uh, I, I, I'm always very hesitant about knee jerk reaction re, uh, research or knee jerk mm -hmm. things that pop up uh, for various reasons. So I appreciate, Stephanie, that you've been thoughtful and working on this for a while. My last question is what, what's next for you after your, after your PhD is done at Colorado state? <laughs> uh, well, I'm hoping to continue in academia and in research as a professor. Uh, I'd like to continue on this line of work with community resilience, with multi-hazard modeling, with technical communication to communities, uh, and also in the realm of resilient and smart cities. So starting to bring a little more AI into the picture, maybe. So ultimately, I'll probably stay within research in this area. Yeah, well, I, I, I will certainly be watching your career uh, closely. I, I'm very uh, impressed with what you've done. And I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. Thank you. Thank you.